Welcome to another episode of Marvel's Voices. I am your host, Anjali Grochet. For those of you who are new to the show, Marvel's Voices is not just my love, but it is literally the place to spotlight diverse storytellers inside and around the Marvel Universe, including writers, artists, actors, directors, and fans like you. Today, I'm super excited, and it's not just because Marvel's Voices Legacy Number 1 is out now. Like, right now, you should go get it. You should go to your local comic book store or anywhere where you get your comics. But, like I said, that's not the only reason I'm hyped. We have not one, but two interviews with two of the amazingly talented writers from the book. We've got two born and bred Marvel fans, author Tochi Onyebuche and writer Stephanie Williams on the show today. Can you tell that I am so geeked? You can. I know. It's fine. I, I don't hide it. What I love about this episode is that we see a little bit of the life of a storyteller and that it's not linear and it doesn't have to be. These two started off in so-called traditional fields and use those experiences to pour into their work. And now they're comic book writers. It also helps that these two are just great at what they do. We talked to these two creatives about their work, their love of Marvel and geekdom at large. And of course, we get a little sneak peek into their stories in Marvel's Voices Legacy Number 1. First up, I chat with Beast Made of Night author Tochi Onyebuchi, who I bonded over starting our careers in law. Yeah, law. So stay tuned for that. But also, throughout the duration of Marvel's Voices Legacy number one, you know, I've had such wonderful privilege to be in contact with a lot of the writers, artists, and all of the creatives, right? Like inkers, pencilers, colorists, and Tochi is included in that, but this is actually the first time we met in person, and can I just say, you can feel his energy from miles away. Literally, we're on two separate coasts. He was an absolute joy to talk to. Tochi's story is about Domino, who you may know from the comics, but just in case you don't, She's the Merc who escaped illegal government testing and lives her life on her own terms. Amongst many things in this interview, we'll get into where he takes her character and what taking on her story meant to him. And as you dig into Tochi's comic story, you should really look into him as a person. This man is a former civil rights attorney, has endless degrees from the most prestigious institutions, and... His most recent novel, Riot Baby, was literally just nominated for an NAACP Image Award for Outstanding Literary Work. Like, (laughs) I I cannot say enough about his accolades. I am here with a very special guest who we have a lot in common. We're going to get to that. But (laughs) first, I want to have this conversation. We both have ridiculously complicated names for certain people. Certain people. Not every. Not everybody being from Louisiana, most people in Louisiana are like, okay, we get it. We know where you're coming from. But for those at home who are reading your work and reading your stories and have may never, like, may never have heard your name out loud, can you say your wonderfully beautiful name for me, please? Oh, thank you, Angelique. I am Tochi Onyebuchi. So good. (laughs) It's such a good name. Can you thank your mother for me? It's such a good name. I thank her every single day. Uh, you know what else you thank your mother for, which I thank my mother for, uh, wanting us to be way too overeducated. Oh my good! Like I just every time that I that I do an event and like the bookseller or the moderator or whoever is reading my bio, I'm just like, okay, blushes Nigerianly. Like that's just like I can't. <laughs> like, Everybody's looking at me like, and even when the event is online, I can feel the stares of everybody in the crowd and their jaws just hitting the floor. Like, why? Why? And the answer is because I'm Nigerian. I mean, yes. (laughs) Because look, here's the thing. And and there's been so many 
first and second generation Americans who have been on Marvel's Voices. And it's always so interesting to me because there's a standard, right? There's this, mm. there's a standard of like, well, we know you want to be an artist. I come, I'm multi-ethnic. I come from a very interesting background. I am fourth generation, like <laughs> mm-hmm. mm-hmm. great grandparents. And they were like, so we know you want to be an artist. And that's nice. Mm-hmm. But we also want you to eat. So yeah. professional degree? <laughs> yeah, it's, it's like doctor, lawyer, engineer, right? You're like, oh, I want to be an actor. And it's like, Tochi, it is pronounced doctor. <laughs> <laughs> like, you know the vibes. Also, I hope your mother listens to this because that was beautiful. <laughs> The funny thing is, so my sister was a doctor. And so I was like, all right, so cool. I know what a foot looks like in a jar. So I'm not, I'm I'm going to law school. I'm going, like, I don't, I'm good. I don't need to see any more. I I know what a bone box is. For the doctors out there, I have a lot of respect for you and the fact that you literally carry around hardware. Mm. Hardware to deal with bones. But you became a lawyer. And mm-hmm. I'm going down this path because I, I want folks to know in your bio, it specifically says you are a civil rights lawyer. Talk to me about what that means. And unlike me, it sounds like you actually went and you like practiced law. I did, I did a little bit. I did a little bit, you know, I, I, I did, I did uh, you know, a little stint. What's funny is like, so I don't know that anybody leaves law school ready to do the thing that they first came into law school for. Because like I went in and at first I was really into like international organized crime because I was writing like thrillers and stuff on my outside of school. What? Like that was just what I did. I was like, oh, I'm going to go and I'm going to work for Interpol and I'm going to track down arms dealers and da 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 da. Like that's, that was my justification because mom was like, okay, you're going to law school. And I was like, I got to come up with a reason that's interesting to me to like go to law school. And I was like, I'm going to do that. And then when I was at law school, I found out how much you get paid as a corporate attorney. And I was like, okay, dear diary jackpot. Like this is, it's ridiculous. Like when I was there and it has since gone up. When I was there as a summer associate at a big law firm in New York, you could get paid over the course of 10 weeks, $30,000. So I ended up doing a summer associateship after my 2L year. I earned more money in those 10 weeks doing nothing than I'd owned cumulatively in my entire life. But it wasn't until the second half of my time in law school that I started getting involved in issues of criminal justice. And so, you know, the the summer after my first year, I actually got to go to the West Bank and worked for an organization that advocated on behalf of Palestinian Arab detainees that were being held illegally in Israeli jails under this law of administrative detention. And it's funny because it was through that that I started being interested in issues surrounding incarceration in the United States. So I get back to the States and it's like all I'm thinking about. And so I did a, you know, a law clinic at Columbia about mass incarceration, wrote my journal note on like modes of incarceration that were birthed in the United States that got exported. Like it became my life. After law school, I was very fortunate to get a fellowship to work with the Civil Rights Bureau of the New York Attorney General's office. And that, like, experientially, and also just, like, emotionally, was maybe the most meaningful thing that I could have possibly done right out of law school. Because, like, you know, you go to work for a corporate firm or whatever, it's, like, five years, seven years before you're even in the same room as a client, right? Like, they don't let you do anything. You're on doc review for, like, the first half decade of your time at a corporate law firm, right? But literally within a month at the AG's office, I had like deposed opposing like parties. I had negotiated a settlement agreement. Like it was ridiculous the amount of actual work I was able to do through that opportunity. I got to do a lot of work concerning juvenile detention in New York County jails and throughout the state of New York. And that was when, you know, issues of incarceration became even more visceral and real for me. 
And I ended up taking that understanding with me to the Legal Aid Society, where I worked for their parole revocation defense unit. So all this interesting stuff is happening around me, and I'm being involved in very, at least to me, meaningful ways in the lives of other people. And I know because writing is how I organize the universe, I know I'm going to write about this. I know I have to find some way to write about this. And if you look at, at my work, like even, even back to my first novel, Beast Made of Night, the issues of social justice that are inherent in my work stem directly from that time that I spent literally walking up and down Rikers. And I love that because you're taking mm. your experience and you're bringing it in, right? Because now mm -hmm. your mm -hmm. story makes so much sense to me. Like, yeah. I'm just like, yo, okay. The tone, the pacing, everything. And it's so interesting how people's experiences can be so varied and so different. So I got an LLM international law and then mm. I went onto the Hill and ended up in justice policy, which eventually mm. ended up in the mass incarceration space. And that for me was when I was like, so I'm out. <laughs> cool, cool, cool. It's so intense. Y'all are not trying to take people out of jail. And so I think it's really interesting because the other thing, and this is this is kind of, I, and sorry for jumping in, this is where I wanted to kind of bring it around. People always go, well, I don't understand. How did you end up in comics? And I'm like, it's all storytelling. Like every, yeah. single, every single piece of it, you know, a legal case, writing evidence or any kind of proffers for why you're going to get policy across, creating a testimony, all of it is writing. Now, some of it is fiction, some of it's nonfiction, and some of it is more exciting than others. But honestly, <laughs> the nonfiction is pretty exciting. Yo. Yo, you can't make some of those stories up. You really can't. You really, you can't. really can't. So circling back, you are now this incredibly successful writer. You just got a new accolade literally yesterday. <laughs> Talk to me about, you know, Tochi walks in and goes, so this has been great. Thank you so much for all of the fun. I'm going to go do the thing I said I was going to do in the first place. Deuces. I knew that I wanted to be a writer ever since I was a kid. And it was only a matter of how big a percentage of my professional energies it was going to take up. Like it was a foregone conclusion ever since I was like a teenager. And I figured out for the first time that there was, there was somebody behind the curtain with regards to the books that I was reading. Like they didn't just spontaneously generate themselves and appear and on And it shelves. wasn't Richard like, Pryor. No. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> so... But like, I, I knew that this was going, like, I couldn't not write. It was like thermodynamics. It was like gravity. It was just like a part of my life. And even if I never got published, I was always going to write. So like, that was never really a concern for me. But like, as we were talking about earlier, growing up in the households we grew up in, you gotta, you know, you gotta eat, or at least you gotta convince your parents that you will find a way to eat. It was actually during that year-long fellowship that I signed my first book contract. And what's wild is like signing that, like that first chunk of that advance, which like wasn't even really like that much by the standards of, of the industry and whatnot. It was, it was good, but it wasn't like, you know, I wasn't gonna like buy a house or pay off my loans or anything like that. That like advance, that first chunk allowed me to eat for like the rest of the year. You know, when we talk about the ways in which seeing dreams come true can really change your lives in very tangible ways. I didn't have to worry about groceries because of, <laughs> of that first check of that advance. And so, you know, I, I still worked day jobs. I started to transition out of the legal profession and, and went into tech because, you know, more flexible hours and whatnot. And as I got busier and busier with writing, that became more and more necessary. And it wasn't until probably, I think, March of 2019 that I finally went full-time with the writing. And it was the only reason for that was that I had saved up enough money. Like I'd saved up enough money. I'd reached a magic number where I was like, okay, if I go a whole year without making a dime off of my writing, without selling another project, without anything, I'm still set. And if after, at the end of that year, it doesn't work out, I can go back to being a lawyer, being a tech professional or whatever. You still right? have a law like, degree. You, yeah, you, I like that. That's, that's not like, going anywhere. All right, 
cool i did this thing yeah. i passed the bar gave up my soul in my life for seven years like i i can mm-hmm. <laughs> like yeah. i can go no, and exactly. do this so what i love is and folks won't be able to see this you are clearly a huge nerd which i love i see some very choice trade paperbacks and graphic novels behind your head i see that you are a marvel fan Talk to me about when you first got into Marvel. Oh, my goodness. It was a sort of one-two punch, like simultaneous one-two punch when I was a kid. The first was X-Men the Animated Series. That was, in many ways, my point of entry. It was stupendous. And it was funny because a couple of years back, I went back and I watched like the first couple of episodes. Maybe I think it was episodes one and two, that Night of the Sentinels two-parter, right? And there's a moment literally like at the beginning of episode two, where, so Beast has been captured in an attack on a Sentinel facility that's gone sideways, and Magneto this is where, comes with- Is this the one where Morph disappears? I just wanna be clear. Yes, yes. Okay, cool, 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 yes. cool, cool. Yeah, this is where Morph disappears, yeah. So, and Magneto comes with like, you know, the beginnings of the Brotherhood of Evil Mutants, and he goes to break Beast out of jail. And he's like, Beast, like you see how these humans are, come join me and my squad. And Beast is like, no, I'm going to submit myself to the human's justice system. And literally in the middle of this Saturday morning cartoon episode, they have an entire unadulterated discussion about segregationism and integrationism. No metaphors or anything like that. And I was like, wow, they really, they really had this on Saturday mornings, like for kids. This is amazing. And that was my intro to so many seminal X storylines, right? Like Dark Phoenix Saga, which to me is one of literally like the greatest stories ever told. Ever. Like that storyline has imprinted itself on my narrative DNA so deeply that you can probably see Chris Claremont's fingerprints in like everything that I've read. It's ridiculous. Why Dark Phoenix? So this ties into another part of my narrative education is I'm a huge anime and manga fan. And one of the recurring tropes is this whole like deal with the devil storyline, right? Where in order to get enough power to do the thing that you need to do, whether it's like take revenge for your massacred village or beat your arch rival or whatever, you end up making a deal with the devil. It's Sasuke and Orochimaru, right? Like it's that sort of thing. And... I had absorbed so much of that as a kid and felt really, really, really drawn to it just because of so many of the issues that it implicated. And Dark Phoenix Saga in many ways was the apex of that. And you go back to the original storyline in the comics and Jean's first encounter with the Phoenix is like a call for help. Like the team's gonna die. It's literally, she's praying to the cosmos. Phoenix comes and like that is the beginning of so much. There was There's a certain point where towards the end, you know, Cyclops is is like trying to get Jean to not be Phoenix anymore. And there's a moment there, it's like this small moment, but it's so important where Jean's like, I kind of like this. It's like, Yo. I'm, I'm, not, I'm not the nice, sweet girl you think I am. I am yeah. a badass. And I think that's really interesting because, you know, you kind of flow through these storylines. You you attach to these storylines. They embed in you like oh, so many credible things. And I've I have taught Claremont is so like he's so proud <laughs> of that particular storyline. Mm. But for you being such a fan and like understanding this almost anti-hero type dichotomy, I hear you talking about. Tell us a little bit about the story you wrote. No spoilers, mm-hmm. if you can manage. And why this particular main character? It was funny because, you know, the 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 prompt, so to speak, gave me a, a lot of latitude with regards to who I could who I could write about. And there were a couple characters that I was sort of thinking about and playing around with, but I wanted to do a character that didn't necessarily get as much play as I would have liked to in a lot of major storylines and whatnot. And a character that I found interesting and fascinating and that had a certain tragic dimension. Like that's something I'm always looking for with everybody's powers. If you make somebody super powerful in a particular way and you give them something that they can't protect, like that to me is such an incredible point of conflict, right? And I am like over and over and over and over again drawn to that. You know, I settled on Domino and it's funny because over the course of writing the story, she became my favorite character. Like my all time favorite character. I love Domino so much. So I read the story 
And one, I was like, yo, it's beautiful, <laughs> right? So I actually read the script and then I saw the pages and then I saw the finish. I read it for the first time and I was like, oh, what is happening here? And then I saw it and I was like, Oh, yeah. this is happening here. Yeah. Oh, no matter how many times Domino has been in this situation, right? Like, i.e. Cable. Mm -hmm. Like, no, no matter how many times Domino has been placed in this situation where Domino's greatest strength is literally her greatest weakness. Mm -hmm. I don't think I was ever as impacted until the last panel of that story. And I was like, I don't like it. <laughs> like, it's, it's, <laughs> yeah. This is a very lonely existence. This is my PTSD, tra traumatically impacted Merc, who is yeah. dealing with a lot of feelings, but also bang, bang, shoot, shoot, tear it all down. It actually, it means the world to hear you talk about having this reaction to the story because, you know, so much of that is exactly what I was going for. And like one thing I love about the Marvel stories in general is that combination of intense feelings and bang, bang, shoot, shoot. There's a combination that I constantly come across. I can't tell you how many moments I had reading House of X and Powers of Ten where I just like, I was feeling every single feeling, every single feeling. And at the same time, I couldn't stop turning the pages. Like, I, it was just absolutely mind-blowing. And I think you're absolutely right to draw attention to Ken Lashley's art because similarly, I saw Domino's story in my head and as I was writing it, I could see the images. And then when I saw his pages for the first time. I mean, it's Ken Lashley. Like, how do you even, like, for, let, let's take a pause <laughs> and a step back. <laughs> the artwork for your story was done oh. by the Ken Lashley, like how do you, cause you're a big comic book fan. I'm pretty sure this is your first Marvel mm -hmm. story. Mm -hmm. what, what do you, how do you even react in an email when someone's like, so uh, Ken Lashley's gonna do your pages? I don't think it's still a hundred percent like settled in my mind that this literal Titan, this, this man who resides in comics Mount Olympus for me is, so intimately involved in a story that I'm like, it just, it's wild because I've seen, I've seen these character designs in so many seminal stories or stories that are seminal to me. And now to see it married to a thing that I wrote, it's like the greatest honor in the world. This is probably one of the coolest things that's happened over the course of my career so far. A lot of cool things have happened, but having Ken Lashley do art for a story that I wrote for Marvel, like that's got all the jigsaw puzzle pieces of like the most baller thing I've ever done. So thank you, Ken. For folks who are listening in, like this is the second year of Marvel's Voices being a physical comic. And it's such an incredible anthology, right? Like you've got Nadia Corfor, mm -hmm. Danny Lore. Y'all are all friends, which is so like, so funny to me, like seeing y'all <laughs> yeah. interact on Twitter and just like knowing <laughs> none of you can actually talk about the book. <laughs> Yes. But, you know, you're part of this incredible anthology, right? Because it's 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 a unique piece where you get these windows into these characters' lives. What was your first reaction when you got invited? Like, how do you feel? I know how I feel, but that's, that's not why we're here. <laughs> what does it mean to be a part of this anthology? Before the question was even finished, yes, yes. Yes, I will do it, yes. Like, they don't give me any more details or anything. It was like, yes. <laughs> Because it's the dream, it's the dream. Like while I was watching X-Men the Animated Series, I was running around, because this was before TPBs were really a thing, I was running around trying to collect all the, cause like, you know, the X storylines would be across like four books. So Executioner's Song, which is right up there with Dark Phoenix Saga for like my favorite X storyline of all time, was in X-Factor, X-Force, Uncanny X-Men and X-Men Volume 2. You had to collect issues from all four. So I was like scrambling around like a chicken with his head cut off trying to get all these issues. But like that experience, being able to actually hold the comics was so like wild to me. And the fact that now I could like, 
I'm a part of that. Like that's, it's mind blowing to me. It's absolutely mind blowing to me. So like, and it's funny because the whole time I'm, you know, telling this story and I'm like, I hope they like it. I hope they like it. I hope they like it. <laughs> I was so nervous. Like I loved the story. I loved every second of telling it, but I was like, Tochi, you better not mess this up. <laughs> Look, you can tell how much of an ex fan you are because of the nod to Cable, right? Because mm. of the history that you infuse in the story. I gotta ask though, you do write short stories, but this is a different kind of short story. It is a economy of words. Was there a difference for you between writing novels and award-winning short stories? I'm just, I'm not letting you out, <laughs> off the hook on that one. How does that differ for you on structure and how you approach the story? It's interesting because there was actually a lot less of a learning curve for me than I expected, in part because so much of my writing is already very visual. As acrobatic as the prose can sometimes get, like I always have to see something to write it. If I'm stuck on a scene, for instance, it's probably because I haven't choreographed that scene in my head. So being able to track character movement and all of those things, like that's always been very important to me. And so when I transfer that to the idea of writing a page of comics, like it made sense. It made like immediate sense to me. And I think part of it too is for me, recognizing it as a truly collaborative medium, because like it doesn't exist without the art. It truly doesn't exist without the art and the idea of I'm going to write this and I'm going to try to make like I want to make Ken's job as easy as possible, right? Like, <laughs> so just being absolutely clear about what I envision happening and then just like letting him go Super Saiyan on it. It's just it wasn't necessarily difficult. I think the interesting thing, the more interesting thing for me was in terms of structure, because you want to have an arc like a whole art to Domino's store and you want it to be self-contained. And that to me was probably the biggest challenge was because so much of the X stories and for every character involved, peripheral, tertiary characters, people that appear in two issues over the course of three decades, continuity is paramount, right? That to me was even in this standalone episode in Domino's Adventures to be able to like nod to the fact that she has a whole existence outside of this story, right? And the enormity of that. Like, so there's that, there's like this end, and then the other end is like, you know, writing part of an ongoing series and everything like that. And I think maintaining that balance between an ongoing series versus a single short story, it was more like a temptation thing for me. It was more just like, okay, Tochi, reel it in, reel it in, reel it in. You're not writing a limited series. <laughs> well, that's, and that's actually my next question. Like, I'm, I'm really curious because it's almost like, particularly in the anthologies, because for me, anthologies are, oh, this is what they were doing between the times that they were blowing things up and fighting the big fights. They were living their lives and impacting mm -hmm. their character, right? Do you feel like that tempted you in that you were like, oh, I want to write more? Or do you feel like that took a little bit of the pressure off because you're like, oh, nothing miraculous needs to happen. It's just mm. a piece of this character's life. Yeah, I mean, there's a little column A, a little column B, right? I think a lot of pressure was taken off in the idea that this is just a short story. Like, this is just like a standalone short story. People people can come into this not knowing anything outside of the very basics of Domino's character. You know, what is her power, right? And even that, you, you know, you discover over the course of the story if you didn't already know. But at the same time... As I was writing the story, I fell deeper and deeper in love with Domino as a character. And so I was like, okay, if if Marvel was like, hey, Tochi, you want to write a Domino limited series? I'd have a hard time saying no, right? Like, I want to write all of the Dominoes. <laughs> now, like, that was the danger, was that I would fall in love with this character and want to write nothing but this character. So yeah, I may have fallen head over heels for Domino. So, you know, wink, wink, nudge, nudge, if the opportunity came to write more Domino, I don't think I'd turn it down. Noted, and the powers of me. <laughs> We'll probably hear this. So one of the things I, I, I really do love about your energy, about your love for craft and writing is that you seem to have this amazing fervor for character development and making mm -hmm. things 
utterly like complicated and nuanced and complicated in a good way, not the bad way, complicated and nuanced. What are you most excited for folks to read from your story and just kind of the anthology overall? I'm excited for readers to really see these characters as characters, as like people, because as you point out, like this, a lot of these stories exist in this sort of in-between space, between the big adventures or the, the boom, so to speak. You really get to see what these characters are like in their off hours. <laughs> and I think that's so revealing in every situation. It's so revealing of characters. Like, what are they like in their off hours? When they take off their armor, what does the day look like for them? And it's so fascinating, too, because they're such important moments. They're such important moments. I hope readers will come to Marvel's Voices legacy and leave with increased enthusiasm for the characters that they've read about there. What would little Tochi say to big Tochi if he would like in a comic book store picking this book up on February 24th, 2021, when it's available? Little Tochi would probably faint. <laughs> He's like, is that my like, name? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Be like, I didn't think my name was that common. <laughs> so, there's got to be another Tochio Yemuchi after what is going on. I, I really, I, I'm always very excited when I see our folks cross over from the professional that we were taught that we needed to do to succeed mm -hmm. to the art that really feeds our soul. But in particular, I love that for us because our art is better because we did the things that we did because of the experience yes. that we have. And it's so much richer because we have those experiences and not just experiences as being first generation or experiences being a person of color, but like experience of being a lawyer and going to Rikers and like understanding, mm -hmm. you know, being on the West Bank and like understanding the different nuances of it all. Right. Like. I think I see a lot of it differently because I did international comparative law because, you know, I was on yep. the hill and all of that stuff. And it's so dope because you you look so happy. It makes like I am <laughs> genuinely happy because you look happy. And that kind of joy is why we do what we do. You know what I'm saying? Yep. Yep. <laughs> Chef's kiss. Chef's kiss. Oh my God. Okay. So that was a great chat and I could have probably talked to Tochi for another hour, but we have another amazing artist on the show. So get ready because you're about to hear some immense fangirling up next. Stephanie is, I dare say, one of the original black girl geeks on the interwebs. She started off as a scientist while podcasting on the side, and then she woke up one day and decided, I want to write comics, and you know what else? I can do this. Since then, she's been featured in NPR, Rotten Tomatoes, Den of Geek, and even Marvel.com. Stephanie's going to walk us through her love of Monica Rambeau, because really, this is just a Monica Rambeau fangirling session, her journey to Marvel's Voices Legacy number one, how she brings her humor into comics, and just, you know, all the great things she's doing and has done. So please stay tuned and listen to my interview with Stephanie. Hey, boo. Hey. How you doing? I'm actually doing fairly well for a Wednesday, almost a Tuesday. Wednesdays are a thing. But the great thing about Wednesdays is Wednesdays are National Comic Book Days. And right. what I hear is that a couple Wednesdays from now, because we were recording this prior to the book coming out, you are going to be a published comic story writer in uh, a little anthology called Marvel's Voices Legacy Number 1. How does that feel? It feels surreal, to be quite honest. Um, it still has not hit me that this is actually happening, even though I've written everything, I've seen thumbnails, I've seen inked pages and all of that, and it's still kind of like, huh, so this actually happened. I love it, and I love the story, mainly because it involves our favorite character, which is nice. Normally it's like I say my favorite character because I'm sitting here like schooling someone on Monica Rambeau. Today I get to say our favorite character. Also because your story involves gumbo. I mean, how could you not 
how could you write about this character and never reference gumbo? I respect your honoring of my native food. It's good. So good. We've talked a couple times. We have had many conversations on the interwebs and I kind of know the story, but I love hearing a little bit of your background because you are a true comic book fan. You're not just a Monica Rambeau fan. Like your knowledge of the X-Men, your knowledge of all things Marvel, your ability to do these acrobatic commentaries around the Marvel universe and continuity. Impressive is putting it lightly. Talk to me a little bit about your background because it has a little bit, your your love of comics comes from a family connection, but not in the way that people would think. And then talk to us a little bit about your first comic books. You know, like I've always known about superheroes and Marvel and all of that via video games, older brothers, all of that. But it wasn't until I actually picked up an Avengers comic. It must have been West Coast Avengers or something like that. And I read it and I was like, oh, this reminds me of some of the drama in the soap operas that my grandmother watches. And I was like, oh, so this is what comics are? <laughs> and I just fell in love with it because, you know, of course, I love superheroes doing superhero things. But what I really, really love is superheroes being just as normal and messy as we are. Because at the end of the day, whether, well, unless they're aliens, uh, but aliens have feelings too. <laughs> they are humans with extraordinary powers, and but they're so ordinary. So they still get into ordinary mess. Like what is there not to love about Crystal, one of the Inhumans, having an affair with a real estate agent? She has a whole affair with him while visiting <laughs> while visiting her sister-in-law and brother-in-law. And it's just the, I don't know, I just love it. How could you not love that? The only thing I can think about right now is the whole concept of Madeline Pryor. There's a lot of problematic things about Madeline Pryor and the whole clone situation and having the baby and then getting kidnapped. I mean, anybody who knows that storyline gets the whole points we're talking here, but you gotta love Jean Grey being like, Oh, hey, boo, you thought I was dead. How's it going? Who's this woman? And why does she look like me? I mean, come on. Also, Scott Summers, how did you not know? Let, no, let me give start. <laughs> let me not get started on Scott Summers. I have a lot of feelings. But point being is I love this idea because Marvel really is the world outside our windows, right? Like this mm -hmm. idea of superheroes being relatable, whether it's, you know, Peter Parker or Miles Morales having everyday problems or having a crush on girls or writing poetry or you know trying to get his jump shot right like it is like all of these things that make our superheroes in the marvel universe so amazing for you did you feel like beyond all the other stuff that comic books spoke to you in a very particular way or in like in a different way on how they were composed and presented? So I loved it because uh I feel like with a comic book it forces you to Pay attention. Of course, you should be paying attention to anything that you're consuming, but it does in a different way where the art matters just as much as the words. And it's just so easy to kind of miss things and miss cues if you're not paying attention to that. So I love the fact that I can reread um, something like Amazing Spider-Man Annual 16 over and over and over again and catch stuff that I missed before just because of all of the minor details or just seeing things differently as I'm reading it. Like that's just something that has always appealed to me that no matter how many times I read a comic, there's just always something for me to find that I just missed before. Or even if I didn't miss it, to just kind of appreciate the story that has been told with the words and also the pictures. And I mean, like, of course, like children's picture books and stuff like that. But it's very different in the way that, you know, there's this orchestra going on on your page. So you should be paying attention. That's such a dope way to think about it. This phrase did not originate with me, but this concept that, you know, comic books are the ultimate team sport, right? Like mm -hmm. you get this opportunity to work with an artist and, you know, depending on the story, also a penciler, a letterer, a colorist, like down the line, in addition to working with the editor and getting the story together. And I love that. And I, I love that it's almost like a community within a community. And mm -hmm. I think for you, like you, even before you got into 
writing comics because, and we'll talk about this a little bit, you've got your own independent work that you've done, which is one of my favorite independent comics, just because one, I love living single and two, I love all the characters you use. You've also been a part of this larger community, really bringing your own perspective to comics and to fandom. How did you get into... And I want to say editing, but like you do memes, you do sound bites, you bring in animation, like you're an all around fan, did some really great work for another publication that we've both done stuff for It's fangirls and sci-fi mm-hmm. wire, you know, how, how did you get a part of that? And do you feel like you're kind of navigating this space impacted how you tell stories? So as a black woman, anyway, I always felt like I was challenged in my knowledge of things. So that in turn made me say, okay, you'll never catch me slipping. And I just fully immerse myself into the things that I love. And by doing so, I'm able to, I don't like the way that I interpret it and then the way that I, you know, not just regurgitating what I know, but explain it to people in a way that I'm understanding it. And I feel like that's where the connection comes from. So For instance, I brought up, you know, Crystal's affair with the real estate agent. I'm thinking of R&B music, right? I'm thinking of these, (laughs) like these love, these terrible love stories that happen or beautiful ones. And I'm thinking of that while I'm reading those things. Or, you know, I love Real Housewives of Atlanta. And I'm thinking of different things that happen there and how that translates to, I don't know, between Wanda and Vision, comic book wise. You know, just what would that after show be like? You know, I'm just thinking of that in ways to apply it and then get folks interested in the things that I do, because it's not enough to just show that, hey, you know, all this stuff and sound like a Wikipedia page, like where outside of being a nerd and loving these things, like, you know, who are you? And this is who I am. Like, this is who I am as a black woman. And this is how I am and digesting and then, you know, telling folks like, this is why I like this. Like you, maybe you didn't see it this way, but this is how I see it. And this is why I'm able to enjoy something that has often not had a lot of me in it as far as like strong black female characters and stuff like that. This is how I'm still able to connect to these things because there's other elements to it that speak to me. So I want to take it back for a second. So I think the interesting thing is like we've talked about where you started, like picking up your first comic books and really getting into it. Talk to me a little bit about your journey and how you got into the fan community, particularly, you know, in the tight crew that I, you know, I kind of think I'm in, but I don't write as much as y'all do of like. Those of us who are out here providing this type of commentary, how does one go from picking up West Coast Avengers to being Stephanie Williams, Stephanie I Will on Twitter and being a published critic and commentator and journalist within this genre sphere? So I hope this doesn't make me an outlier, but by being your authentic self, um, this is again like, you know, Anybody can just repeat what they've heard, but what is it about that thing that is that makes it special to you? And then having the courage to share why that is. So I found other folks who did not shy away from being true to why it is that they were drawn to a thing or why they loved it. That started with podcasting. Um, I actually had a podcast where I only talk, which was crazy because I know it's hard to believe, but... I am shy and I don't like talking like that, which I know, (laughs) but it's still true. And starting with that and being like finding community basically of other folks who was like, you know, I thought of it that way. Or like when I watched the Terminator, yeah, I thought that they was ruining this woman's life too, just so that she can give birth. And then her soon to be son in the future sends back somebody so that he can exist. And it's just, it's all very inconvenient. But you see what I'm saying? Like just different things like that, like different connecting and just thinking of things in that way and finding other folks who get it. And then from there, from podcasting, when I got comfortable with my voice in that, I got comfortable with my voice enough to start writing. Because writing has something, there's something that has always been near and dear to my heart. But I don't know, like you hear, you can't make a living off of that. Well, guess what? You also can't make a living off of science, which I did for seven years. 
Oh, wait, 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 wait. Talk to me. Talk to me about that. What do you mean? So I was a electron microscopist, and I know that that sounds like a mouthful. So an electron microscopist is someone who takes images of tissue on a very, um, all the way down to their ultrastructure. And by ultrastructure, I mean that you can see cells, you can see DNA, all of that. And if you were to go into the doctor's office and get a biopsy on your kidney or a piece of muscle tissue, I would walk on down to the lab area, pick that up. I would process it following a bunch of steps. They're not important. (laughs) And the very next day I return to work, they are in resin blocks, which are these really hard blocks that preserve the tissue. And I'm looking through a little microscope and getting like the little sections of your tissue onto very, very, very small copper circular disc and then putting them into this very giant microscope that Monica might love, but a very giant microscope. And I'm imaging them. I'm telling actually I'm telling a story of what it is going on with you and your body. So if you happen to suffer from lupus or be afflicted by that, then I would be able to tell the story so that the doctor could diagnose that correctly. So it's just funny that storytelling has found a way to be a part of my life, even when I didn't think it was. But when I think back on it, there's been so many ways that I've been honing my storytelling skills via comics without even knowing it. That is amazing. Now I just want you and Raven the Science Maven to now have a show that would be dope you move from the very multi-syllabic word that you just used that i'm gonna go learn after i finish interviewing you into this space like what does that look like so what it looks like is not necessarily being fully content with what i was doing because something was still missing it was a job that i loved but it wasn't a job that i was fully happy with because there was still that nagging thing of this isn't actually what you want to be doing. And I'm just like, be quiet, brain. We have bills to pay. So I said, okay. So what I can do when I get home from work is do mom stuff, but also do stuff for me, which included reading comics, talking about them on the podcast, and eventually writing about the comics or just different fandom stuff. Eventually it got to a point where I was like, you know what? I want to make comics. I've always wanted to make them. But again, it's this process of building up, I don't know, I guess my confidence in a way, right? To get comfortable enough with my voice and then feel like I can be a strong enough storyteller. But that's always been the case. That is what led to me finally creating my first webcomic, which is Parenthood Activate. And I didn't have to do a lot of, you know, heavy lifting because it is just retelling all of the amazing and sometimes frustrating things that happen while trying to raise a rambunctious now five-year-old. I love that. One, you are hilarious. It's very honest. Like folks are hearing your voice and you're very calm and soothing tone and intonation on how you say things in such a a wonderful, straightforward and unfiltered manner. But (laughs) I feel like the voice that you have when you tweet and the voice you have when you write is not the same voice that you have right now because sometimes it's like yelling with me not yelling at me yelling with me about a thing for you is it just like stephanie is at home and being like this is funny i'm gonna share it oh it's absolutely that all the time so everything i do is because i thought it was funny and whether or not you know the tweet sits there and gets absolutely like maybe four likes it doesn't matter to me i found it funny so i wanted to share it and it's It's always the case with almost everything that I do and not to like sound selfish, but if I don't do it, then who else is like, who else is going to think of writing a whole piece on the best butts in Marvel from like 88 to like 96? Who? I want to kind of get to the subject at hand. I'm a big fan and I am extremely excited that you're now like an official freelancer from marvel.com you've got you know living heroes out but you got tapped to write for marvel's voices legacy number one like talk to me about this process does like does sarah brunstead just like email you be like yo i like your writing you want to write for me it was kind of like that so this is the story i was coming out of the gym i'm in my car hurting because we just did this really ridiculous workout 
And something told me to open my email and I open it and I see you want to write for Marvel. So I'm thinking, and I promise you, this is not a flex. I'm thinking that it's one of the editors over at marble.com, you know, pitching me an idea of something to write about. So I'm like, okay, you know, I'll look at this when I get home. I keep scrolling and I keep looking and I see Marvel voices. I'm like, okay, I know Marvel Indigenous Voices just came out, which was phenomenal, by the way. I keep reading, then I see Parenthood Activate mentioned. I see the Marvel Butts piece that I wrote for Fangirls mentioned, which really blew my mind. <laughs> and then I see Living Heroes mentioned, and my heart drops because I'm like, oh no, is this the moment that they finally get me? But that's not what happened. What happened was they asked, would I like to write for Marvel Voices Legacy? And... I screamed at the top of my lungs. And you know how I know I was loud? Because in the gym, the music was blasting. And then I hear a knock on the back of my window, like, is everything okay? I'm like, yeah. <laughs> Some really great news just happened that I can't talk about right now. I'll share later and probably share on Facebook at some time. But yes, I'm okay. And I just drove home in complete silence because... Never did I think. And I don't say that as a way to discredit myself and think that I was unworthy. It's just that the things that I was creating, Parenthood Activate, Living Heroes, were all things that I created because I, I wanted them to exist. Toni Morrison said, I'm paraphrasing loosely, but if there's a book out there that you want to read, then you must be the one to make it. And I always take that quote to heart because she's so right. And I know it's easier said than done, but that's essentially what I did. So to have those pieces of work recognized enough that the one place that I would have loved to write for to extend an invitation, it just, it blew my mind because everything that they praised me about was me. You get tapped, you come in. Talk to me about how did the story come about? Why this story? Because what I love about anthologies is that it's a little bit, it's a little window, right? Mm -hmm. it's, it's not anything major. You're not changing canon. You're telling such a relatable short story within four, five, six, seven pages. You know, how did the story for Marvel's Wizards Legacy number one come about? And I hate even asking this question because I know you well enough, but why Monica Rambeau? So the moment Sarah said, pick whoever you want, I said, we'll bet. You know, I thought I needed to give a, wait a few days or whatever to finally say who. So I get home and I'm like, ah, I got a shower. So, you know, all your best ideas come to you while you're in the shower. So like I had a whole little seven stages of whatever, right? I'm thinking, okay, great. I'm writing something for Marvel officially. Crap. What am I going to write? How will I do this? What is this going to look out? And I'm like totally freaking out. And then I had a moment where I was just like, but Stephanie, they reached out to you for a reason. And the reason is because of the way that you tell stories. Sarah mentioned that she loved Parenthood Activate and also Living Heroes. So like do something within the same energy as that. And that should be a no brainer. And I kid you not. The story came to me before I got out of the shower and did not leave me because I was smart enough to take notes. Like I was like, hey, Siri, uh, notes. I've learned my lesson with that. And I just had this really great story that I wanted to tell because I've always loved Monica Rambeau and her parents because I thought that they were just the most amazing thing ever because superhero world, if you have parents, good luck because they're either six feet under, there's only one left, they're terrible or whatever. And that's just not the case for Monica, right? Her parents are amazing. So I wanted to tell a story that involved at least one of them, her mom, and it takes place at a supermarket. And then when I asked, hey, can I sneak in some more people? They said, yeah, sure, if you can make it work, sneak them in. If you tell me something, please know that my response in my mind, if I don't say it aloud, is one simple word, bet. I love it because, and one of the things that I love is that you specifically chose to put Monica back as Captain Marvel with the Avengers. What was it about this? And why did you decide to put her with Thor and uh, 
She-Hulk. So I put up with Thor and She-Hulk because Monica fans, I hope you remember this, but when Captain America asks Monica, she wants to become a leader of the Avenger to take Janet's place when she decides to step down. There's this hesitation that Monica has because she just had joined the Avengers, right? She hadn't been with them a long time. So like anybody, she'd be like, are you sure? But he was sure. And everybody else should have been sure because Monica is that girl. But anyway, Thor being Thor, Odison, his father had a problem with the hesitation. It's just like, well, if you don't want to do it, then somebody else can like me. And she hopes is like, no, slow your roll. Monica's got this. She's good. She's Gucci. She can do this. And I really enjoyed that little back and forth between the three of them, but specifically between she Hulk and Thor. And I love that after this happens, of course, Monica and she Hulk are good friends, but Thor, and Monica become fairly good friends and Thor is like a real champion for her when she needs it especially later on in like the mid to late 90s Avengers run like Thor is there with that hammer ready to do what he needs to do to make sure that Monica is good because at one point Monica is captured and Thor is like "Mm -mm, we going after her what has it meant for you to be able to write Monica for Marvel's Voices Legacy number one. It has been a dream to come true. There's no mistaking that I love these characters, but of course certain ones just have a very, very special place in my heart. And Monica is one of those because I've just always, Monica's story has just always resonated with me. You know, she gets passed over for a promotion that she rightfully deserved. Doesn't matter though, because late in the midnight hour, energy, We'll turn it around and that's what ends up happening because that's how she ends up getting her powers saving the day because that's like who she is whether she has her powers or not she is captain marvel she is a leader even when she doesn't give herself credit like she just can't help herself she is there to help she is there to get the job done and she's there to get it done well so that is just something that has always resonated with me because whether or not i think i can i always end up rising to the occasion and i feel like monica does that so that's just something that i always loved and i loved her relationship with her parents it reminds me of the relationship that i have with my parents because they are just so supportive of her and again, like in superhero, you know, genre and world, like we really don't have a ton of just parents that are like championing for their children to be these mass crusaders and like, you know, so being there and supporting them the way they need. Like when Monica loses her powers and goes through that really traumatic thing going after Neymar's wife and all of that. They're there. They're there at the hospital. The Avengers know to call them up, fly them out. You know, Tony put them on the jet, got them out there to the hospital, and they were there to take their baby home. I'm just so happy that I got a chance to just kind of shine a little bit of a light on that for folks who, you know, might not be familiar. And hopefully they do want to get familiar with her and go back and, you know, recurrent issues, past issues, all the Monica Rambeau get it. For those folks who are new to writing or coming into their own and finding their voice. Do you have any suggestions, any tips, any advice? Yes, write your thing. It's so easy to kind of do it now. And by easy, I mean like just access to Google Docs. While I was working a lot of times, because I mean, I want to like pat myself on the back, but I was like really good at my job. So I could multitask for real, for real, because I didn't have to put forth a lot of brain power to do what I needed to do for certain stuff. So while I was waiting on something like an experiment to finish and I would like have my phone out and I would be in Google Docs, just writing down story ideas that would come to me or if I had an idea for a pitch, writing that down real quick. So get creative in the ways that you um, get your thoughts out. I mean, just speaking as a mom, like sometimes I'll be in the kitchen like trying to make breakfast or whatever. And then while I'm waiting for the bacon to finish or eggs or anything, I am on my phone getting my thoughts out real quick. So just get those thoughts out. And remember like when you're creating, you are creating for yourself. Now it's not selfish to say that because it should be something that brings you joy. And if it resonates with others, then that's beautiful and that's great. But at the end of the day, like this is for you. This is your story. This is your drawing. This is your art. Like 
it should make you happy because we all deserve an outlet to just kind of get out our feelings and what we're seeing in our minds or whatever and to like just release it into the world however that is even if it's stuck on your phone it's still out that's what's important that being said stephanie it has been a joy talking to you if folks are looking for you on the interwebs how can they find you where do they see your work and your stuff i am predominantly on twitter that is my main hub it's at steph underscore i underscore will or there's a backup account which is at underscore why stuff which the reason why it's why stuff is because my um, actual website is why stuff and that's W-H-Y-S-T-E-P-H. You can find me in those places. There's a link tree in my Twitter bio where all of my things are. Coffee links to Living Heroes if you want to check that out. Same thing with Parenthood Activate, but what if though uh, my other webcomics. So either way, you'll hopefully come away, I don't know, feeling good because you've laughed a little bit because joy to me is very revolutionary in the fact that you can um feel good despite the world being on fire and that's okay because you still need and deserve a little joy so i'm here to give it thanks again to tochi and stephanie for joining me today honestly it is such a joy to talk to people who really personify the essence of storytelling as a life journey I mean, Tochi was a civil rights lawyer and Stephanie was using human tissue to help people treat ailments. And I used to be on the campaign trail. And now here we all are creating stories and doing what we love. See y'all, you can literally do anything you put your little nerdy heart to. So go do it. Thanks for joining us for another episode of Marvel's Voices. We'll see you next time. Marvel's Voices is produced by me, Anjali Brochet, Alexis Williams, and M.R. Daniel. Our director of audio is Jill DeBoff. Our development manager is Brad Barton. This episode was mixed by Cedric Wilson at Lentigua Williams & Co. Our theme music was composed and performed by Kamal Wainaina.